0: Thank you, brother. I thought for a minute there that it was going to be like a number of years ago, I was in Russia, and the, the, um, the pastor of this church that we were pastor or partnering with asked me if I'd preach, and so we come to the gathering and the service, and, and he starts preaching. Now, of course, I can't understand most of it, but he preached for quite a while, and I didn't realize that when he asks you to preach in Russia, you're one of several who preach, so... I thought, go for it, bro. <laughs> um, so, my experience with church leadership started almost 35 years ago when I was asked to be on the deacon board of a large church that Roseanne and I were involved with down in Portland. Now, honestly, I had no idea what I was getting into. Um, if I'd known, that at this church, the typical deacons meeting started at 6.30 p.m. and often didn't get over until 1 a.m. I might have thought twice, maybe even three times, about, about being appointed to that position. And everybody who was on the deacon board at that church was the chairman of a committee that was you know, involved in some kind or some part of the ministry of the church. I was the chairman of the evangelism committee. Now, as I look back at that, it just there's something wrong with evangelism and committee being in the same sentence. I'm not sure exactly what it is, but you know. But to be fair, God used that time to prepare us and to prepare me for a lot of things. Several years later, um, Roseanne and I were part of a team that was sent out from that church to go plant a daughter church about 10 miles west out in Hillsboro. And in that process, I learned a lot about church leadership. Um, Most of it was really good. Some of it was not so good and actually left some pretty deep wounds. So that by the time Roseanne and I left that church almost, well, over 20 years later to move up to Gig Harbor, um, we were frankly kind of burned out on church and especially church leadership. Now, I'll come back to that story in a minute, but I wanted to start there because today we're finishing the th- third of a sort of three-part mini-series, you know, like they do on TV, the mini-series thing. Um, this mini- mini-series mini out of Titus 1 about the role of elders. And so, Abe started us out a couple of weeks ago just talking about the, the sort of foundation of biblical ideas of leadership. He talked about positional leadership that's unfortunately often based on power, motivated by fear, versus servant leadership that's supposed to be motivated out of trust, based in love. And then last week, we got a little more specific, and Abe took us through the list of qualifications for an elder in First Timothy, 1 uh, Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And by the way, if you missed those messages, I really want to encourage you to go listen to them online, because... If I had time, we'd actually stop and we'd just listen to them here because they make a perfect introduction to what we're going to do today, which is to talk about the responsibilities of an elder. But before we dive into that, I want to ask a question. I want to dialogue with you a little bit um, because I think this is going to kind of help us um, introduce this idea. I want to get your feedback. What do you hope or expect elders in the church to do? This is the part where you talk to me. <laughs> what, is, what do you hope or expect elders or leaders in the church to do? Shout it out. Okay, good. Be an example of following Jesus. Uh-huh. Shepherd the sheep. Okay, we hear that a lot, and we're going to talk about it a little more. Teach. Okay. Listen. Listen how? Okay, yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, thank you. That's great. Matt, you... Okay, being a resource for the family. Good. Anybody else? Practice what they... Yeah, no kidding. I mean, I think kind of back to... Somebody said, be an example. I mean, you say one thing and don't do that. There's clearly some issues. Raylene, did you? Okay, guiding decisions, vision, kind of leadership. Good. One more? Okay, practice church discipline. Not, Not an easy topic, but definitely part of what we're called to. Now, my suspicion is that almost all of us at some point or another, if you've been in the church for very long, have experienced some disappointment or hurt when elders or leaders didn't do what you hoped or expected they would do. And we're going to talk a little bit about how we deal with that disappointment toward the end. And and by the way, I I loved the way Abe started last week with comparing the, qual- the qualifications of cheerleaders to the qualifications of elders. I was trying to think of a way to compare the duties of cheerleaders to the duty of elders, and I thought, no, not so much. Um, but, um, so this morning, the launch point for our dialogue is the discussion of, of, in Titus 1 about elders, but we're going to look at a number of passages. And for a moment, I want you to just kind of pretend with me that we were going to post the job of elder on, you know, your basic job posting site like LinkedIn or monster.com or one of those. Okay. Now I know we don't do that, but just kind of come with me there for a minute. If you go to monster.com or LinkedIn to look for a job, what do you look for? What do you, I mean, you start with money. Okay. Um, I would hope at least I think for most of us, you kind of start with, Hey, I want to look for a job that's something that I think I would enjoy doing, or that I could do. Right, and so maybe you kind of narrow it down based on on what we uh, what you hope to do or what you want to do. And in fact, last week Abe pointed out that in the very beginning of the list in First Timothy, Paul assumes that elders want to do what they're doing; that they actually desire this role, not as a for having a position or for getting recognition of people, but because they want to do this kind of work. And in fact, one of our sort of tests when we're looking at elders is to see people who are actually doing the work even before they've got a title or position. Okay, so we've kind of narrowed the job list down to the things that I want to do. What's next? Probably qualifications, right? I mean, education, whatever, if you are looking at a job that requires a PhD in math and you didn't pass ninth grade geometry, might want to try something else. Um, or if, you, uh, if you're if you looking at a job that requires, uh, you know, nine, 10 years of, of nursing experience and uh, you faint at the sight of blood, maybe not, you know, maybe not your first choice, okay? So... Finally, we get to qualifications. We say, okay, this is a job I want. You know, I think I've got some or all of the qualifications. What's the last thing you're going to look for? I would argue a job description. I mean, I want to know if I get this job, what are you going to ask me to do? Right? I want to know what the the duties of this job are. Now, here's the challenge with the elder role. What I find very interesting as I dug into this is that Paul... In both Timothy and Titus, presents this very nice, organized, concise, pretty detailed list of qualifications, but he doesn't follow it up with a job description. I'm like, Paul, did you forget? <laughs> and we kind of want to know what we got to do here. Now that isn't to say that there aren't that there's no indication in Scripture of what the role of an elder is. Otherwise, this would be a short message. But But the truth is that for some reason, the Holy Spirit did not inspire Paul or any of the other writers for that matter to give us a similarly concise list of the the responsibilities of an elder. So why is that? Now, I don't know for sure. And I think you gotta be a little careful about drawing too big a conclusion about what's not in scripture. But we already observed last week and we've observed through this series that even the qualifications for an elder are almost entirely character qualifications. With a couple of minor exceptions, and I might even argue that even those exceptions really aren't exceptions, there really aren't any skill qualifications. There aren't, you got to be able to do this or that. They're all about character. You can't, or at least shouldn't, get this job based on your abilities instead of character. Just because you're an eloquent or engaging speaker or even that you can very compellingly explain God's word doesn't substitute for the character qualifications. Now, don't get me wrong. These gifts and abilities are very important to our family and they can be used to great benefit, but skills aren't a substitute for character. Ultimately, the character of a leader is far more important than the competencies of a leader. Now, I don't think that any of you would probably disagree with that, but the problem we often face as a family is if you've got a great need, and you've heard us stand up here and and say, we've got great needs in our family for people to serve. It's really tempting if somebody comes along who's just really strong in that area and gifted and has great capacity to serve in that way, it can be really tempting to overlook significant character issues because of the competency and the capacity that that person has to serve. And I want to say again, as we've said repeatedly through this, and Randy even emphasized, we're not expecting leaders, including elders, to be sinless, because if that was the case, Jesus Christ would be the only possible candidate for an elder. Okay, And in fact, if that were the case, then your elders wouldn't be in need of God's grace and we wouldn't be very good examples. But we do expect elders to be quick to confess their sin and turn their worship away from the false gods that drove them to that sin in the first place and to turn to Jesus. And we find that the more we do that, the more quickly we turn to Jesus, the more satisfied we are in him and the less we're interested we are in those gods, those false gods, that drove us to that sin in the first place. And I want to say, as Abe has said a couple of times, that is the goal of every Christian, not just an elder, because if we are examples of mature Christians, then that goal is for all of us. So with that kind of long winded introduction, let's begin to discuss the responsibilities of an elder. Um, and from the perspective that character always trumps competencies, and thus I would even argue that the job description of the elder takes a backseat to the character of an elder. So, because we don't have this nice, concise list that I get to walk through, I think this is why Abe left this one to me. Um, (laughs) We don't have this nice, concise list that we just get to walk through and say, this means this and this means that. We kind of got to run around and sort of collect the list And so what I want to propose to you this morning is that we actually just sort of try to look at all of the the responsibilities of an elder and put them into three big categories. And here's the categories I want to propose. First, to oversee. Okay? You often hear the elders called overseers. To oversee, another word might be to manage, we'll talk about that. Second, to shepherd, a couple of you brought that that whole point up. And then finally, to teach. Now, that isn't to say that's the whole list, but I think we can take all the responsibilities we're going to see and put them in those categories, even though undoubtedly some of them will overlap and and that kind of thing. So let's dive into that first category, to oversee. Now, this one comes directly from the English translation of one of the words that is used in scripture to refer to an elder. The Greek word, if you care, is episkopos, and it's usually translated overseer. And so here, the title actually describes the role. An overseer oversees. Kind of makes sense. Um, Another word, as I mentioned, might be to manage. So look at what Paul says in that list of qualifications in 1 Timothy 3. He makes a qualification statement that describes this oversight responsibility. And so speaking of a potential elder candidate, he says, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? You see, Paul says that one of the the qualifications of an elder is that he manages or oversees his household well, Because if he can't manage his household, how's he gonna care for, and it's interesting that he uses those words sort of almost synonymously, care for the church. Now this word that's translated manage is actually used again in a couple of chapters later in 1 Timothy 5, but it's translated a little bit differently. 1 Timothy 5 says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And the word rule there is exactly the same word than 1 Timothy 3, where he said manage, okay? Or yeah, to manage his household. So clearly Paul sees leading, ruling, managing somehow, and you brought this up as we talked about it, as part of the responsibility of an elder. But I think it's fascinating and, and significant that, <clears throat> excuse me, that the test Paul uses is how this man manages his household. Now, I want to say right here, I don't believe that that means necessarily that Paul is saying you got to be married and have kids to be an elder, because this is really about how a man manages his household regardless of what that household looks like. For a single man, that obviously won't mean his kids are well-behaved but it could mean that he manages his time and money in such a way that it shows that the gospel has soaked into every aspect of his life, every corner. So single people, men and women out there, let me ask a question, do you manage your household well? Does the way you spend your time and money demonstrate your love for Jesus, for his church, and for the lost? Or does your budget and calendar suggest a worship of free time and leisure. Married people, with or without children, do the priorities of your time and money show a pattern of increasingly submitting all of life to the lordship of Jesus, even with the normal chaos of raising kids. Now I think Paul's choice of father as a model is significant in that way, but it's significant in another way because For many church leaders, and certainly for me, in the the first number of years that I was involved in leadership, the mental model for management or oversight is often a corporate board, not fathers. And as you probably know, in the corporate world, the CEO is sort of the top of the hierarchy, but he's managed by an elected board of directors who sort of oversee that CEO and set his pay and technically even hire and fire him. But everybody else reports to the CEO. And of course, his specific objectives would be quite different than a church board. But I think the very fact that we start with that idea of a board has pretty significant impact on the way we think about management And when you start with that model, it's not hard to see how many leaders end up focusing directly or indirectly on the three B's of church leadership. You know about the three B's? Buildings, bucks, and bodies, okay? Um, The church can very quickly get focused on attracting enough people to bring in enough money to pay for the staff and the buildings. And when you get in that mode, it's very difficult to change because... If you call people to something that upsets them, they might leave, and they might take their money with them that pays for the buildings and the, and the uh, budget. Okay, And sadly, very often in churches that I've been involved with, making disciples who make disciples can quickly become secondary to filling the seats and growing the budget. So what would change if we started with a completely different idea or model of what this idea of management would mean. I think that if we were to start with this model that Paul did, that is of fathers as compared to a board, it would change everything about the way we see the, the task of managing. You see, a good father doesn't manage his household for the purpose of getting a bigger house, does he? He doesn't have more children so that they can go get jobs and increase the family budget. A good father manages his household to nurture his wife and children and disciple them into mature, mature followers of Jesus who can go out into the world and make more followers of Jesus. So it seems clear to me in Scripture that the corporate model with a board giving oversight to a senior pastor slash CEO is not the model described in the New Testament. And I want to instead propose a model that we as elders are And in fact, our whole Soma family of churches are committed to. We believe that the church is to be led by a plurality of biblically qualified elders with equal authority, though often different roles, mutually submitted to each other under the leadership and lordship of Jesus Christ as the only senior pastor. Now, that's significant enough, and it's long enough. I want to try reading it one more time. Yep, it is there. Good. Good. We believe that the church is to be led by a plurality of biblically qualified elders with equal authority, though often different roles, mutually submitted to each other under the leadership and lordship of Jesus Christ as the only senior pastor. Now, I'm not going to spend a bunch of time trying to defend that statement. Abe talked about it a little bit last week. If you have questions about why we believe that, there's some really good uh, books, resources, and in fact, we're going to talk about it a little bit at Intro to Soma Um, later this morning, so if you wanna hang out with that, um, happy to talk to you about it. Um, By the way, it's also important to note that this management responsibility or this overseeing responsibility doesn't mean that the elders manage everything. Good managers, even in the world, delegate authority. They give it to others, both to stay focused on their core responsibilities, but also as a means of developing leaders. We see that very clearly in Acts chapter six, when the elders in the Jerusalem church realized that they were spending too much time leading what was essentially a food bank and so they decided to appoint godly men to and women to oversee or to manage that distribution of food under their leadership and protection that's a perfect example and that's exactly where these first role of deacons which if you read the second list in first timothy describes the qualifications of deacons and is remarkably similar. Okay, so we believe that oversight or management modeled after fathers, not a corporate board, is one of the key categories of responsibility of elders. And I also want to just say here, in reference to my earlier story, that, that this is one of the wonderful blessings of heritage that we as a family have received from our forefathers, if you will. Like, is Jeff a forefather? Um, (laughs) He hasn't died yet, but... um, When Roseanne and I um, came to Soma 11 years ago now, um, with, frankly, a lot of wounds and a lot of being tired of church leadership, um, I came to a family that, for the first time I ever saw, a plurality of elders mutually submitted to each other under the lordship of Jesus Christ, and it actually worked and it was incredibly healing. That environment of grace has done more to heal some of those wounds than many, many other things. So thank you, Lord Jesus, and thank you to our fathers, um, our forefathers. That still sounds wrong, (laughs) but anyway. um, So the second clear, clear, clear category of duties of an elder is to shepherd the flock. 1 Peter 5 says this pretty specifically, and he actually ties our first and second category together. He says this, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, there he puts oversight and shepherding together, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example to the flock. I'd love to spend time in each one of those little couplets because there's a lot there, but we just don't have time for that this morning. Um, Peter tells the elders to shepherd the flock and even implies that oversight and being an example is part of that. But I still have this sort of question, I have kind of a vague notion, but what does it mean to shepherd the flock? Now, I think it's interesting that the word that's used in Scripture is exactly the same word that's used for the literal job of a sheepherder, okay? There's no difference between this command to shepherd the flock and be a sheepherder. You can draw whatever conclusions you want out of that, but I think at least um, one thing that we could say is that one way to answer this question, to understand what the shepherd role does, is to look at what sheepherders do, one of the things that the shepherd does is feed the sheep. Now, there's an obvious tie to teaching, and we're going to come to that in our second category or our third category in just a minute. But a shepherd also cares for the sick among his flock. This is where James five instructs us. He says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Notice it's plural there too, and let him pray let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So clearly one of the duties of an elder is to pray for the family especially when there are unique and maybe physical needs. Now, I think it's important for us to understand that what James is not saying is that elders have some special line to God for healing that those of you the rest of you don't. Because in fact, if you are surrendered to Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, you have in you and at your disposal, all the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. I cannot top that, okay? Um, And in fact, I think what James is actually leading us to is a recognition that the job of shepherding is broader than sometimes we narrowly define it as just sort of the spiritual health of the family. What if it's really, as my brother Don often likes to talk about, what if it's more holistic than that? It's spiritual health and physical health and emotional health and relational health, and even financial health. And I would say that that's part of the reason why you hear us talk about money up here. It's not because we're trying to grow a budget. It's because we believe that that financial health is so key to following Jesus that we don't follow our culture and worship money. Okay. So the third thing that a shepherd does is to protect his sheep. Hebrews 13 says this, he says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. An elder's responsibility is to keep watch. And the picture here is of a shepherd who stays up all night watching for predators or other dangers that would threaten the flock. So what threatens our flock? Well, lots of things, but let's look at one specifically in Acts chapter 20 where Paul was addressing the elders of the church in Ephesus and listen to what he said. He gave him this warning. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. I love the fact that he starts out with pay careful attention to yourself because you can't be a good elder if you don't start there. In which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood he has entrusted you with something that is incredibly precious to him it cost him his blood to get it i know that after my departure fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock and from among, among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them so clearly the fierce wolves in this warning are false teachers now We're gonna talk a little bit about that for just a second in the third category of teaching, but I know we're gonna get to more of that later in Titus. But just before we go on to that last category of teaching, I I wanna make a quick comment that actually Abe pointed out to me as I was preparing, and I think this is super important. Um, Because the word that is translated shepherd is also sometimes translated in scripture pastor. Probably the most notable or best known uh, places in Ephesians 4 where Paul is listing some spiritual gifts that are given specifically to equip the church for works of service. And one of those gifts he talks about is actually the same word, shepherd, but it is in many, in some translations, translated pastor. And the key little point I wanted to make here is that pastor or shepherd is a responsibility of elders, but it is also a gift. What it is not is an office of the church. The the Bible only describes two offices in the church. And that is the office of elder and the office of deacon. So pastor is a responsibility and a gift. And by the way, lots of you have the gift of pastor shepherd, men and women. There's no reason for us to believe that that gift was given exclusively to, to men. Though we do, and we've said before, we do believe that the office of elder is reserved for men, and if you got questions about that, we'll talk about it afterwards. Um, So, let's get to the last of our categories, that is the category of teaching. Now, the list of the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 actually includes one of the statements that looks like a skill qualification, because he says, they are able to teach. Now, the original word actually might be better translated apt to teach? Because the question here is, does, does able to teach mean that you've got to be an eloquent public speaker? Frankly, I doubt it, because there's good reason to believe that Paul was not an eloquent speaker. He once nearly killed a guy who fell asleep in one of his sermons, fell out the window, right? At least I can say I don't think anybody has died during one of my sermons, okay? Some of you have slept, but at least nobody's died, okay? Um, so... So what does it mean? I think that able to teach or apt to teach implies someone who naturally teaches the truth of God's word in every circumstance of life. I think you could make the case that it's another way of saying what my dear brother Jeff likes to call gospel fluent. It doesn't mean that you can just give a stirring speech, though that may be part of it, It means the gospel is so soaked into every aspect of your life that you naturally address situations in life through the lens of the gospel. As you talk to people in any context, whether it be your missional community, your DNA, at work, in this kind of a formal teaching environment, you fluently apply the gospel to life's challenges and situations. And remember what Abe said earlier that, that as, elders are an example to the flock. We are examples of what? Of mature Christians. And that means that being gospel fluent, apt to teach should be a goal for every one of you because all of you are teaching. You are teaching something both by word and deed about who God is and what he's done. So be apt to teach. So there's a a sort of instructive aspect to teaching, that's what we've been talking about, but there's also a corrective aspect to teaching. Titus 1.9 says this, he, referring to the elder, must hold, hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Now certainly some of the time that corrective responsibility is actually gonna mean confronting somebody who is um, teaching false doctrine. But I think more often in our kind of context, what it means is being able to recognize the subtle or really not so subtle lies that people believe about God and help them see the truth. For example, when a member of our family demonstrates a judgmental or critical spirit, the corrective teaching might look like digging into where that judgmental spirit is coming from. Perhaps this this brother or sister has reached the conclusion that that God is not completely satisfied by the work of Jesus and that they need to work really hard to gain his acceptance. Well, when we have to work really hard to gain someone's acceptance, acceptance, it naturally causes to be judgmental of other people who might not be working as hard as me and might be perhaps failing more than I am. And so that corrective teaching can be to point them back to the completed work of Jesus and and help them understand that that they don't need to earn God's acceptance at all. It's done through Jesus. And when that happens, the fruit of that lie begins to change and the judgmental spirit begins to diminish because they don't know, because they, they know that their work is entirely not part of how they were justified before God. Does that make sense? So we've talked about three categories. We've talked about to oversee or to manage. We've talked a little bit about shepherding, talked a little bit about sheep uh, teaching. And of course, it's been kind of a 50,000 foot flyby. But um, when we started our time together, I asked you to be thinking about things you wanted or expected from elders or leaders. And I would be willing to bet that you have been disappointed by some leaders in church, either SOMA or other churches you've been involved with. In. If that's the case, and even if it's not, I wanna point you to the perfect elder Jesus. Because while well, we elders will be held accountable for the responsibilities we've discussed, and we're just as much in need of grace as you are, we are no less subject to failing in sin we are gonna disappoint you. And that's not an excuse. It's just the fact of our brokenness. But the good news is that if you follow, if you do what uh, Paul commanded the people to do in 1 Corinthians 11 and said, follow me as I follow Christ, when I fall, you will be able to see Jesus even more clearly as the perfect shepherd and overseer of your souls. Listen to what 1 Peter says. He says, he himself, speaking of Jesus, bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. For you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So you see, we elders have been delegated with some authority to shepherd and teach and protect Jesus' church, but it is still Jesus' church. This church does not belong to Abe or Randy or Don or Mark, thank the Lord. It belongs to Jesus who is the shepherd and overseer of our souls. So if you've been wounded by church leaders, if they've disappointed you because they didn't do what you hoped they would, Um, Would you take that to Jesus? He is the perfect shepherd. Now, I'm going to tell you that when you take that to Jesus, one of the first things he's going to ask you to do is to forgive them. Not so you can let them off the hook, not to absolve them of their guilt, but that's the Father's job, not yours. In fact, this forgiveness is for your health. Because the more and the longer you focus on the disappointment and hurt that that leader called you, caused you, the less able you will be to see Jesus, the perfect shepherd and overseer of your soul. So I'm going to ask Aaron if he would come up. What we're going to do, I'm going to ask him to play for just a couple of minutes um, instrumentally because I want us to, to stand and to listen to the Spirit Perhaps you have been hurt by leaders. Um, Would you take that to Jesus this morning? Would you listen to the Spirit? Aaron's going to play for a few minutes, and then what we're going to do is we're going to come forward and take communion because this bread and this grape juice or wine symbolizes the cost that Jesus paid to pay for what those leaders did and for my response to them. So when we take this, this is an act of worship that says, Jesus, you are the ultimate shepherd of my soul, not that person who hurt me. And I lay that down and give it to you. Now, if what I'm saying this morning doesn't make any sense to you because maybe you've never met this perfect shepherd and overseer of your soul, Would you please come talk to one of us afterwards? Let us introduce you to this Jesus that loves you so desperately that he is the shepherd who not only is the good shepherd, but actually lays down his life for the sheep. Most shepherds don't have to do that. They can just kind of fight off the predators. This shepherd died to save you. So we're going to take communion. And then afterwards, I'm going to come back up and charge you. But there's also going to be some people... Um, around the room here with these really cool prayer lanyards on. Um, we want to invite you to come and pray with those people and maybe process what the Holy Spirit's been telling you, even if you don't have one of those leaders that, that has really disappointed you, but that you would take to the Spirit. And even if nothing else, would you pray for your elders here? If you've got nothing else to pray for, if you've never been disappointed by a leader, wow, I'm amazed. Um, But would you still pray for us? I hope you felt the magnitude. I mean, some of these passages, listen to when I read Hebrews and it says that we will give an account for those under our care. If it weren't for Jesus and the Holy Spirit living in me to do that, that would be a crushing weight. But Jesus is the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let me pray. Dad, and the example that you gave. But more than the example, you didn't just live as an example for us to copy you. You actually died to be my perfect shepherd. You paid for my wrongs. You paid for my worship of other gods. It cost you everything. Thank you, Dad. We worship you because nothing else we worship is worthy of our worship. We focus on you because you are the one worthy of worship. And we ask you, Dad, to teach us. Teach us elders what it means to lead this family well, but I pray, Father, as well, that you would call men and women in this family to pray for the elders, to ask how you would use them to serve and to speak the gospel and speak truth both inside our family and outside our family. We love you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.